is around the Hebrew letter Lamed, and it begins at verse 89. I absolutely love how this section begins. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances, for all are your servants. In verse 89, the psalmist meditated upon the unchanging nature of God's word, and he simply proclaimed, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Because it's settled in heaven, it's not going to change on earth. And that word of God, what we have before us in our Bibles, in both the Hebrew and the Greek scriptures, it is settled in heaven. It's not merely settled in the heart of the psalmist. It's not merely fixed in his mind, but it's settled in heaven. Now, I hope tonight that the word of God is settled in your heart and mind. But I'm here to tell you that even if it's not, it's settled in heaven. It's objectively settled in heaven, whether the psalmist or you or I or anyone else believes it to be or not. If someone were to say to the psalmist, well, that's your opinion. It's good for you. He would object very strongly. He would say, listen, God's word is settled in heaven quite apart from the opinion of any man. And so they say, well, you know, it's really not settled at Harvard. It's not settled at Heidelberg. It's not settled at Oxford. It's not settled at Paris. You know, there's quite a debate at the seminaries these days. We care nothing for any of that because we know forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. You can toss round about in the seas of drought and trouble all you want, but here's a rock to stand upon. Your word, O Lord, is settled forever in heaven. You know, people change their opinions and their estimations so much in the modern age. I guess we just need to keep up with all the social media of the modern age just to find out what we should be thinking about the Bible these days, right? Well, this week the opinion polls say it's up. These weeks it say it's down, up, down, forward, backwards. There, there's quite a lot of debate about these things. Is this? Who cares for any of it? It's settled for us because it is settled in heaven. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, quote, as for myself, I shall continue to be unfashionable and abide where I am. Sticking in the mud, says somebody. Standing on the rock, says I. Well, it's settled in heaven. You see, the psalmist declared his belief that the word of God was exactly that. Not the words of man, but the words of God that are settled in heaven. He believed that the scriptures came from heaven and not earth, from the Lord and not from man. He believed what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, 
for instruction in righteousness. Now, friends, this means something more than simply saying that God inspired the men who wrote it, even though we believe that he did. But God inspired the very words that they wrote. Please notice what it says in that Second Timothy passage. It doesn't say all scripture writers are inspired by God, even though that's true. Even though it's true, it doesn't go far enough. The words they wrote are breathed by God. As it says, your word is settled forever in heaven. And it isn't that God breathed into the human authors. That's true, but it's not what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says that from heaven... God breathed out of them his holy word. You know, we remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. He said this, that not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. You say, well, what does he mean by that? A jot and a tittle. Well, jot refers to yod. That's a letter we've already discussed in the Hebrew alphabet. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And it looks something like half a letter. But even smaller than a yod, than a jot, is a tittle. A tittle is a small mark on a Hebrew letter. Somewhat like the crossing of a T or the little tail on a Y. I mean, after all, a tittle makes a huge difference in just what a Hebrew letter is. The difference between the Hebrew letter bet and kaf is a tittle, just a little tiny line. The difference between dalet and resh is a tittle. The the difference between vav and zayin is a tittle. Now these are small, almost insignificant differences. Yet Jesus said that even these smallest differences would not pass away from God's word. He said that heaven and earth would sooner pass away than a yod or a tittle from the word of God. Truly, your word is settled in heaven. Now, every preacher especially should be able to say, your word is settled in heaven. And friends, that's one of the first responsibilities of any man or any woman who's going to teach the word of God. They have to have this settled in their own heart. They can't be wondering, well, maybe this is the word of God. Maybe it isn't. No, listen, what God gives for us is the responsibility to simply take this word and first to believe it and then to preach it and teach it as believing men and believing women to others who will hear. So he says, verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Verse 90, your faithfulness endures to all generations. The psalmist believed that the settled word of God was a demonstration of the faithfulness of God. And that faithfulness extends across all generations. And we recognize the truth of this when we look at generations past. We trace the amazing line of God's faithfulness to each generation that despite the worst impulses and works of man. And we also recognize the truth of this when we consider the generations that are present and in the future. You know, the present and the future often look gloomy. You hear it all the time, don't you? And sometimes I suppose I'm guilty of this. You could find me at a bad moment saying, oh, 
It seems like all is lost for the church. Oh, all the great men and women are gone from the church. Where have they gone? Oh, Lord, you've left us with no one. What will happen with the future? Oh, look at the young people. Did Oh, Lord, what's going to happen with the future? Listen, we wonder where the great women of God are that we saw in previous generations. Yet we should never fear because what does it say in his word? Your faithfulness endures to all generations. And we recognize the truth of this when we consider how God has preserved his word through the generations. You know, there are many great works of ancient literature that are lost. And one author or another makes mention of them, but we have no record of that actual piece of literature. Just a mention of it in another work. But listen, we have no text of some of these things that survived to the present day. But the Bible not as only survived, it thrives. And please understand this. And I'll quote now from James Montgomery Boyce. He writes, throughout much of history, the Bible was an object of extreme hatred by many in authority. And they tried to stamp it out. But the text survived. In the early days of the church, Celsus and Prophyry and Lucian tried to destroy it by their arguments. Later, the emperors Diocletian and Julian tried to destroy it by force. In some periods of history, it was a capital offense to possess a copy of the Bible. Yet the text has survived. No, his faithfulness is true to all generations. And so you know what? When I look out at the world today and when I see the present generation and the future generation, I think God's word will advance just fine in the world today. I think God will continue to make an impact on the world. And I don't deceive myself about the darkness and the error and the difficulty that there is in the times. But I believe the word of God that he says, your faithfulness endures to all generations. As a matter of fact, to to make the point even more uh, uh, firm, he says here in verse 90, you establish the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances. The word of God itself, that is his ordinances, is what establishes the earth and causes it to abide. Let me read that again to you. I want to make sure you understand this. Look at the last line of verse 90 and the first line of verse 91. You established the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances. In other words, the ordinances or the word of God is what enables the earth to continue on. That's is what makes it abide to the present time itself. The earth and all of creation began with the word of God, right? Genesis 1. It is no surprise that they continue and that they are sustained and that they endure according to the word of God. Now, when we understand that, it gives new understanding to some wonderful statements of Scripture. How about this one from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Or how about this one? Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, But my words will by no means pass away. Friends, it may be hard for you to comprehend this. I know it's something that I have to sort of bend my mind around. But this is the truth. The word of God is more lasting and more enduring 
than the very earth itself. There will come a time when God will wipe away all things and make a new heavens and a new earth. But his word will abide through all. And these passages put the word of God outside the created world and indicate that the word of God is more permanent and more enduring than creation itself. Since the created world came into existence by the word of God and since it is sustained by his word, it makes perfect sense. Matter of fact, he says this in verse 91. He says, for all are your servants. The psalmist looked at the created order and he understood that all creation ultimately serves God and his purpose. The earth which he established and which abide, it obeys his word. All things are his servants. Now, starting at verse 92, he's going to continue on with the thought of God's word as a sustaining power. Look carefully with me. He says this, unless your law had been my delight, I would have then perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Unless your law had been my delight. The psalmist rejoiced that the word of God had been his delight Reading and studying and meditating on God's word was not a burdensome chore. It was a delight. Now, friends, I just read those words. And I wonder if there are some, perhaps many here this evening. And, and you're too polite to do it. To do it outwardly. But inwardly, when I read that verse, you chuckle a little bit on the inside. It just doesn't seem to work that way for you. You find very little delight in God's word. I mean, you read the psalm, you hear me speak about it. You hear about this man who seems to have a love affair with the word of God. And for you, you feel like you're on a friendly relationship with God's word, but perhaps a very distant relationship. You, you wish it could be different. You read this and you go, I, I wish I delighted in God's word. But it just, it just doesn't work that way for me. Can I tell you this? If that's you, I love you and God loves you. And there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. I, I don't want to heap upon you coals of condemnation upon your head. Why, you filthy sinner. <laughs> if you really loved God, you would delight in his word just as the psalmist does. No, listen, we hear what the psalmist says, and, and our soul is stirred, right? Yet at the same time, we say, I wish I had more of that. Well, can I just say, please take that to God in prayer. Can you just tell God, I want to delight in your word more? Lord, the psalmist seems to experience something with your word that I don't. Can you lead me into some of that experience? Can you show me? Lord, tomorrow I'm going to give more time just to reading and thinking about your word. God, when I do that, can you help stir up some delight, some love, some of this stuff that the psalmist seems to have with your word? You pray and act that way and God will do a work in you. You can count on it. 
because that's the kind of loving, compassionate father it is. Now, we can speculate that one reason why the psalmist delighted so much was that because God met him in his word. You see, to me, this is one of the most beautiful things. And I, I have said this before. I don't know if I've said it in this Wednesday night series to you before, but I, you'll probably hear me say it many times through the years and months from this pulpit that that some of the most wonderfully intense times of fellowship with God I've ever experienced in my life have been when I've studied him in his word. Now, I'm not saying those are the only intense experiences of fellowship. I've had intense experiences of fellowship with God in worship, in prayer meetings, in fellowship with one brother or, or another. I've had those experiences. Yes, believe me so. But, but nothing has been greater, none of those have been greater than experiences I've had time and again where God meets me in his word. And when we have fellowship with God in and through his word, it makes our time in his law delightful. Matter of fact, look at what he says here, verses 92 and 93. Unless your law had been my delight... I would have perished in my affliction. The psalmist knew that without this relationship to God and his word, he would not have been sustained in his season of affliction. Now, again, it should be stressed that this delight goes beyond mere Bible knowledge. It's a relationship with God in and through his word that gives us strength and special nourishment. It's a great, great delight. Let me read to you an extended section from a commentator named Alexander Wallace. He says, I happened to be standing in a grocer's shop one day in a large manufacturing town in the west of Scotland when an old, frail widow came in to make a few purchases. There never was, perhaps in that town, a more severe time of distress. Nearly every loom was stopped Decent and respectable tradesmen who had seen better days were obliged to subsist on public charity. So much money per day, but a trifle at most, was allowed to the really poor and deserving. The poor widow received her daily pittance, and she had now come into the shop of the grocer to lay it out to her best advantage." She had but a few coppers in her withered hands. Carefully did she expend her little stock, a penny worth of this, and the other necessities of life nearly exhausted all that she had. She came to the last penny, and with a singular expression of heroic contentment and cheerful resignation on her wrinkled face, she said, Now... I must buy oil with this that I may see to read my Bible during these long long dark nights, for it is my only comfort now when every other comfort has gone away. Friends, this is what we can know. The law is our delight, even in affliction. And so we can continue on in this idea where he says in verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. 
The psalmist remembered the life-giving power and character of God's word. It was this life that strengthened him in his season of affliction. And you know why the word of God can bring us life? Because it is alive. It is living and active and more powerful than any two-edged sword. Verse 94. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me, but I will consider your testimonies. Oh, I love that first line of verse 94, don't you? The psalmist looks to heaven and what does he say? I am yours, save me. This speaks of the wonderful relationship between the psalmist and his God flowing from the word of God. In it, he recognized that God was his God. I am yours, he says. He he recognizes that salvation is not in himself. He's calling out to God to save him. He recognizes that God hears prayer and answers prayer. And he recognized that God would indeed save him. What a glorious plea this is to God's mercy. Lord, I'm yours. I belong to you. You are my savior. Save me. Oh, I think some of us should write that down. We should write it on our hand. We should text it to ourselves. We we should put it out on Twitter or whatever. I am yours. Save me. This is a beautiful, simple plea of prayer to God. Haven't we noticed just in the two sections that we've gone through this evening that prayer doesn't have to be flowery and eloquent to be effective? What are two of the most eloquent prayers that we've seen tonight? Help me and I am yours, save me. Listen, it's that simple. But these are prayers that prevail with God. But but then he adds on, don't miss this part. For I have sought your precepts. You see, the basis of this confidence was a relationship built upon the word of God. It wasn't a a relationship built upon feelings or subjective experiences, but upon the solid foundation of the word of God. And and even though his life was filled with trouble, look at what he says right there, that the wicked wait for me to destroy me, but I'll consider your testimonies. He, He speaks about his enemies almost in a casual way. Well, yeah, they're out to kill me, of course. Oh, but Lord, I love you and I have my focus upon you. You see, he will not panic, but he'll find refuge in the word of God. Now, verse 96. I have seen the consummation of all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. The psalmist here considered the excellent things that he had seen in this world. Perhaps he thought about things of great natural beauty or the small things of intricate creation. But perhaps he thought about the beauty of a newborn child or the beauty of human love and care. Yet in looking at all of these things, all of them have a consummation in the sense that they have a limit or a barrier. The best things of this world only go so far. And then he says, listen, but your commandments are exceedingly broad. Despite the great and beautiful things of this world, something is greater still. The commandment of God, his revealed word to us, it is not limited as the other things, even the great and wonderful things of this earth, all have their consummation, they all have their limit. 
The word of God is before creation. It is the sustainer of creation. It will endure beyond creation. It is, as he says, exceedingly broad. And that means large, never ending, always continuing. Isn't it strange today that many people seem to think that the Bible is narrow? Right? They think the Bible is a very narrow book. What does the psalmist say? Your commandment is exceedingly broad. You see, they think of themselves as being extremely broad-minded people, yet they show little tolerance with people who disagree with them. God's word is indeed exceedingly broad, and it will make us broad-minded and broad-hearted and tolerant in the best sense if we read it and obey it. It will prevent us from being tyrants over other people, and it will show us how to tolerate others and love others, even when their lives and their thinking are decidedly against God and his word. Your commandments, your word are exceedingly broad. And this broad place is a firm and safe standing place for us. I'll end this with a quote from J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop. He said this, Give me the plenary verbal theory of biblical inspiration with all of its difficulties rather than the doubt. I accept the difficulties and humbly wait for the solution. But while I wait... I am standing on the rock. And that is what we do. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. Lord, thank you that your word is settled in heaven. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. Let men debate, Lord. Let the arguments rage. We find our refuge, our rock, as your word is settled in heaven. And we rejoice in you and we rejoice in it. We bless you, God, for it in Jesus' name.